This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And my very dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, are off for the evening. So that means I am flying solo here at the radio station, and I would love to have you join me. We have two good guests tonight, wonderful guests, in the first hour I'll be talking with Tara Bunch, and Tara is Chief Administrative Officer at the National Geographic Society, a 130-year-old organization. And Tara's going to talk to us tonight about nonprofit leadership and how a 100-year-old organization has evolved through strong leadership. In the second hour, my guest will be Mark Edmonds, Vice Chairman and Regional Managing Partner for Deloitte. He leads client work and is executive sponsor of Deloitte's two-year NextGen Leadership Development Program. The Leadership Development Program enables about 50 high-potential senior execs to reach Deloitte's most senior positions. So I'm hoping you'll join me, and I'm going to give out the number right now. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, if you'd like to join my conversation. And you can write to us on email businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and of course, follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. All right, so since I'm flying solo, why don't I welcome my first guest right away, and that is Tara Bunch, Chief Administrative Officer at the National Geographic Society. Tara, welcome. Hi, thank you very much. And Tara, just let me make sure, check my assumptions, do you prefer Tara or Tara? Tara. Tara. So I guessed right. Okay, very good. Thank you. Well, welcome to the show. And I just wanted to say a little bit about you, and then we'll dive into our conversation. Uh, In 2010, you were named Chief Administrative Officer. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. In 2010, 2017, you were Chief Administrative Officer. Do I have my dates right? Yes. Okay, very good. And you've been with the National Geographic Society since 2010. That's right. And and in your current role, you serve as enterprise leader accountable for managing critical staff functions. And they include information technology, human resources, facilities, finances, planning, metrics, evaluation, and research. Would you say that makes you essentially a chief operating officer? Uh, my my current boss is actually the chief operating officer since there's a few other functions um, that he manages. I like to call it queen of resources. <laughs> okay. Um, pretty much if you need people or stuff, um, you need to talk to me or somebody on my team, which is it's a, it's a great role. Okay. A great organization. Very good. Well, why don't we talk? Why don't we talk a little bit about the organization first? I'm I'm confident that. Our listeners know about the National Geographic Society, or at least think they do. So could you tell us a little bit about the National Geographic Society? Sure. Uh, The National Geographic Society um, is, as you were saying, a 130-year-old nonprofit institution. Um, We were founded to to explore geography and, and, you know, inspire people about the world. Um, 
I think a lot of people probably don't know that we're a nonprofit institution. I think people know National Geographic from the famous Yellow Bordered magazine yeah. or these days from Instagram. Um, but actually, we've been a nonprofit since the beginning, and we've given over 13,000 scientific and educational and storytelling grants over our history hmm. um, to really promote science and education and to lead toward our mission, which is um, a planet in balance. Um, so we really have been working hard over these years. I think that's something that people probably don't know as much about as they do the magazine or something else. No, that's, uh, you know, that really is uh, helpful uh, because I, I will say that the magazine is, is I'm tempted to say iconic. <laughs> oh, you can call it iconic. Go for it. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I think it is. Um, so, so the National Geographic established as a nonprofit. Now this, I'm wondering, do you know the origin story? Who's the founder? Um, well, there were 33 uh, men founders um, in 1888, um, and one of them was uh, Gardner Green Hubbard. Um, Alexander Graham Bell uh, was one of our founders, and they wanted to create a society um, to promote geography and scientific um, exploration and things of that nature. So in Washington, D.C., 130 years ago in January, of 1888, they got together. And at first, it was really more about um, talking about things, bringing people together, convening, talking about, you know, exciting topics of the day. Then they started funding people to go out and do exciting things. Um, And then not very long after, they started publishing stories about those exciting things. And that's where the magazine started. And were those uh, were those uh, initial grants, if you were, were they for exploration? Primarily. Um, So all kinds of things. I mean, some of the most famous things from our history. um, In 1913, we um, supported Hiram Bigham um, along with Yale University uh, to explore and excavate Machu Picchu. Um, In the, I think it was in the 40s or the 50s, uh, we sent Edmund Hillary up Everest. Um, so at the very beginning, it was to truly explore the world. I mean, geography has such a broad uh, definition. So it really was to explore the world and for National Geographic to be that window on the world and grant all of that access to places that people couldn't ever see. Um, the most interesting story, though, is that at the very beginning, there were no pictures. Um, and there weren't for a long time. Um, but eventually, that's what we really become well-known for, at least on the magazine. And when did the publishing begin? Oh, goodness. I want to say in the 1890s. Okay. So not, not too long after the initial founding of the society. Right. And, and then, it wasn't regular until, you know, maybe a couple of years in. Okay. And then, and Nike, I realize I may be asking you about questions that are beyond the scope of your work, but do you have well, a... Well, I wasn't there, but I know, I know, <laughs> I know a lot about it. <laughs> good. good. All right. So I'll keep down this path for a little sure. bit. So it is interesting that the National Geographic has become so uh, famous, particularly for its photographs. I would say even more, um, they have more saliency, say, than the articles themselves, the writing. Do you have a sense of when that happened? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Like I said, in, in the beginning, there were no photographs. Um, the the story, which I'm, I, I have to be honest, I'm not 100% if it's true or not, mm-hmm. um, is that there was an, um, an issue that needed to go to print. 
and some article didn't come in and they needed to fill out the rest of the book. And all they had was some photos from Lhasa, Tibet. Oh, boy. Um, and they'd never put photos in the magazine before. And so to fill out the rest of the book and to make it the right size for the readership, um, they put in, I think, like 12 or 20 pages of photographs. <laughs> um, and the story, and again, I'm not 100% sure if it's true, um, but the story is that, you know, some of the board quit. They're like, that's not what this is to be about. This is a scientific journal. Um, but, you know, that started it, and the subscribers loved it, and it went from there. And we've really done a lot in, um, in sort of the technology of photography, right, the first underwater photos, the first nighttime photos of animals. Uh, and we continue to press the boundaries of that. And actually, we have um, – the society still has an exploration technology lab where we develop – we call them – the folks in the basement, right, because they're just always blowing things up. Um, but they're, you know, they're figuring out how are we going to get cameras in the lowest parts of the ocean or, or the highest parts of mountains, and how are we going to support these grantees and explorers um, that we send out in the world so that they can capture these things, both for scientific research, but also to continue to give the world that access. Okay, so Tara, let me make sure I really follow you on that. So are you saying that, in a sense, you have an R&D group, that yeah. that works on creating equipment cameras in particular that can to borrow a phrase go where no man has gone before absolutely they're amazing <laughs> very every once in a while we get videos of them like i said blowing things up to see if you know hey can this camera exist in a volcano well let's set it on fire <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> Oh my gosh! All right, and now you used to. That's not my job, though, unfortunately. But I, I love that I get to work and support those guys. Absolutely. Now, uh, at the a moment ago, you referred to the publication as a scientific journal. Mm-hmm. When when you say scientific journal, that makes me think of an academic journal, which would be as we call it, peer reviewed. In other words, mm-hmm. the articles would go out for review. Uh, blind review, as we say, by faculty who have expertise around the world. And if the article passes and uh, gets their stamp of approval, it's published. Was, uh, was that how the journal was handled, at least initially? And is it handled that way now? It is not handled that way now. It is, it is a magazine, um, you know, that is obviously based in, in, in science and the scientists that we support and the photographers and the journalists and the, the map makers and everything that we send out into the world to, to report back on these stories. At the beginning, it was referred to as a scientific journal. I, I don't know, honestly, if, if things were peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but that, the way of, you know, that sort of scientific research does continue today in the society. I mean, all of our grants um, that we give out, our grant um, applications are reviewed Um, by a panel, um, not of employees of scientists in different fields, so that we can determine who to fund and and those kind of things. So, I mean, we really are an organization on the nonprofit side based on science um, and really trying to push those boundaries to create solutions for a world that, like I said, we're moving toward our vision is a planet in balance. Today, it really isn't that. And so how can we find those solutions um, and, and try to try to make a difference. Yeah, maybe let's talk a little more about your mission. So when you mm-hmm. say a planet in balance, um, 
I think of right away. I think of a film that came out quite a quite a while ago, and and maybe you'll help me with the pronunciation. But I think it was called uh, Koreana Skatsky, if I have that right. So it was a it was a film that was simply images, not words. Mm-hmm. But the point of the film was that the world is out of balance, mm-hmm. <laughs> needs to yeah. be in balance. So. But I think of uh, environment, environmental concerns when you say that. But is that what the society has in mind? It's that, but it's not just that. Our work, um, we look at it um, through three lenses, right, appropriate for um, a brand known for its photography. So we look through (laughs) uh, three lenses. One is wildlife. uh, One is the human journey. And one is our changing planet. So the things that you're talking about, climate change and and those kind of things absolutely are in the sort of the changing planet portion of what we're talking about. But what we're really talking about is creating a planet that supports all forms of life, right? The, the habitats, the animals, the people, all of those things in balance. Um, and the human journey part of National Geographic from its very beginning, from, you know, the things we look at in archaeology and, and all the new discoveries that our scientists have done over the years, but even the current um, plight of humans across the world, whether mm-hmm. it is you know, refugees, or it is just the changing environment with mm-hmm. storms and climate change. Mm, very good. Uh, and again, maybe no more right? detail here. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Easy. It yeah. is. So, um, and you may not uh, have, be as involved in this regard or have as much knowledge, but I'm wondering on the editorial side, is there an attempt to touch each of these subjects in each in each edition of the magazine or across magazines? Um, I wouldn't say in each magazine, and, and um, just for everyone's information, National Geographic uh, magazine is actually part of a joint venture that we, uh, that we own, which is the for-profit side of National ah, Geographic. great. Um, mm-hmm. So we're sort of two, two companies, a nonprofit and a for-profit, use the same brand, but we're just a partial owner of sort of the more commercial media properties. Um, but we do, I mean, we live on the same campus, and we do cover the same, we have the same areas of focus, you know, like I said, the same brand. Um, and so I wouldn't say that they sort of cover everything in every issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what sort of, you know, we, we, we really believe the good stories are. For example, over the summer, you may have seen um, the issue that was mostly dedica- dedicated to the plastics problem. Right. Um, and so depending some, we've had issues about water, we've had issues about energy, we've, you know, so it sort of depends on, you know, we've had issues about race, other yeah. things, things that are sort of, you know, really important to the, the human condition. Um, yeah, in the I, world. I really enjoyed the, the issue on race. I thought, um, you know, I thought that was just very beautifully, very beautifully done. Well, let yeah, me just let me remind listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall, and I have the real pleasure of speaking with Tara Bunch, and she is Chief Administrative Officer at the National Geographic Society. If you want to join our conversation, please do. Please call 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. So, Tara, let's talk a, a little bit about, a little more about the organization and the organizational structure. Mm-hmm. And I very much appreciate your comment about the magazine uh, being for-profit and, mm-hmm. the, and the National Geographic Society uh, being a not uh not-for-profit, right. and providing, if I heard you right, uh, to date, 13,000 grants over mm-hmm. its history. So um, how, did the, how did the two relate? Uh, 
So the National Geographic Society, as we talked about, has been around for 130 years. Um, about two decades ago or so, we entered a joint venture with uh, 21st Century Fox for the cable channels oh. um, to get, you know, have, you know, sort of the new media at that time, I guess not that new, 20-odd years ago, but it was sort of the next thing that needed to happen. And as a nonprofit, we wanted a partner in that. And that was great and, and worked really well. Uh, for a long time. Uh, in 2015, um, as you well know, there's just a lot of changes in the media landscape. That's been happening forever. It will continue right. to happen. Um, but we realized that there was sort of this unnatural split between some of the things that were on the nonprofit side, which was the magazine was still on the not-for-profit side, and and some books and some digital things, whereas there were things like the channel, uh, the channels globally that were on the for-profit side, and it was sort of this weird disconnect. Okay. And so our leadership at the time, um, we decided we were looking at all these different things and, and looking at sort of a, a continually changing future, mm -hmm. right, of media, and said, you know, it's just sort of odd the way that this is structured. Let's understand what could work better. And we went with our – we talked to our partners at 21st Century Fox, and we said, you know, it would make more sense to combine and really – you know, engage all of these media assets together and all these different sort of commercial ventures together. So um, so in the fall of 2015, we went through a transaction that did expand that joint venture. Um, it kept uh, an ownership stake with the society okay. um, and uh, the other ownership stake with 21st Century Fox. And, I mean, it's such an interesting business structure, right? So yeah. the, the, there was all these wins out of it, right? So there was a um, a payment to the society, obviously, for these for the, this percentage of assets that helped the endowment mm. of the society, which helps fund all of these people that we send out into the world to do all of these amazing things. That content, right, for lack of a better term, that comes back from these photographers and scientists doing all of these things is, is the fuel, right, mm. for things that happen on the channel and things that go into the magazine or books or lectures or other things. Um, so it becomes this real virtuous cycle um, across all of the media platforms and the nonprofit work. And then as the for-profit is successful, mm -hmm. you know, that ownership stake gets distributions back to help continue to, to fund that engine of, of research and um, exploration. Mm, very good. So on the financial side, uh, initially – was the society established by way of philanthropic gifts? Uh, yes, it, we called it membership. We still do. Okay. Um, and so if you were a subscriber to the National Geographic, um, you were a member of oh, the National I am. Geographic. Look, I'm a contributor. Um, there's, this, there's this famous scene in um, oh, that Christmas movie with, um, oh, God, what's his name? Oh, I can't remember it. It'll come to me in like 10 minutes. But it's it's a wonderful life. Yes, yes. And so little George Bailey, when he's in the drugstore, and he's talking to um, the little girl, and he's, he's the soda jerk, he <laughs> says, I've been granted access. He's like, I've been granted membership in the National Geographic Society. And he pulls out <laughs> his magazine, and he puts it on the bar. Um, and so it, it, it has always been that it's, you're not just a subscriber to the magazine. You're a member of this organization. And and that is um, you know that fueled a lot of the um, the research work. We also are a philanthropy. We all we you know we we get donations from foundations and from corporations and from individuals, and always have. Um, but the real engine for for a long time was our members. 
Okay. So just, you know, ballpark in terms of percentages, uh, has that shifted over time so that now would you say that the for-profit uh, side of the equation is contributing more to the to the uh, society, or is is membership still your your base? Um, I, you know, it, it's sort of a, a three legged stool. We have um, a nice portion that comes from the from the distributions of the ownership of the for profit entity. We take a, a spending rule, a roll off of our endowment um, mm. every year, so that helps fund the operational side of the business, and then philanthropy. So they're not exactly equal, but um, we sort of look at all three of them as as the ways we we then fund the nonprofit. Very good. All right. So how about uh, if we look a little bit more closely at your in in your part of the world, how how is the I'm going to call senior staff structured? Mm-hmm. So you told me a little bit earlier that you're the chief administrative officer and you actually report to the chief operating officer. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about uh, or the organization at the top? Sure. Um, I would say in, in sort of broad terms, we're broken up into, into five buckets um, underneath the CEO, um, a new CEO, actually, that just started last week. Oh, that's um, exciting. Yeah. You know, nothing like change. It happens all the time. <laughs> right. um, so we have three areas of programmatic work. Um, one is science and exploration. One is education. Mm. And one is storytelling. So those, there's three heads of those um, three portions of our uh, programmatic work. Then we have um, a development group, so our philanthropy team. Um, We have a head of marketing and engagement, and then operations. Okay. And then sort of under that. All right, very good. So on the programmatic side, science and education uh, Mm -hmm. and storytelling. Uh, Do you have a chief storytelling officer? Uh, we have um, a head of storytelling. I, I don't know exactly what her title is. We do have a chief scientist, though, which must be the coolest title in all of the world. Oh, very cool. Right? Okay. <laughs> and someone who heads up the educational arm. Correct. Right now, actually, it's it's two people that, that, that tag team, one on, on more of the business side and one on more of the content side. But, yeah. Okay. So for listeners out there and for, for me, uh, what is the nature of the role of the the person who's the chief overseeing the science arm? Um, so th- th- there's a couple of things um, I would say, you know, within there. One is the, the grants machine sort of lives in that bucket. Okay. Um, so even though we do give grants across all three areas, um, across science, education, and storytelling, mm. um, that's sort of where the machine is. Um, we have heads of the, those different lenses that I was talking to you about to sort of identify, hey, you know, do we have right. someone in storytelling in the human journey? And do we, you know, what's really exciting in wildlife for education? Um, then we run big, what we call operating programs. Okay. Um, and these are multi-year, um, big, long-reaching um, programs to, to really solve the world's problems, right? So uh, a great example is our Pristine Seas program which um, wants to protect 20% of the ocean by 2020. And so Enrique Sala, who is um, the lead of that um, well-known marine biologist, scientist, just all-around amazing guy, um, has been working tirelessly um, to do scientific research to then present to leadership around the world to say, here's Mm -hmm. why it is important for you to protect this part of the ocean. It is pristine and it is the lungs of the planet, if we protect it, it can help regenerate. Mm. 
So, um, so Tara, just let me let me just jump in just to yeah, ask sure. for clarifying. So, when you say you run these long programs, are those grant funded programs or programs of, that come out of your operating budget? Um, they come out of our operating br- uh, budget, but a lot of them started off as grants. Okay. Right? So, if we give say six hundred grants a year, you know, a lot of that is you know we t- sort of talked about R and D funding in the in the lab in the basement. Right. But this is sort of scientific R&D funding, right? We, we, we seed a lot of different people and then sort of see what comes back and say, hey, that's something we want to do. We want to get behind for the long term. Oh, very good. Very yeah. good. And would the same be true uh, for the heads of education? Would they have similar responsibilities? Absolutely. Same thing. Um, and that is pr- that focuses um, on middle school okay. uh, age children, um, primarily in the U.S., although we do some things outside of the U.S., and it's really about geographic literacy. Uh-huh. So the kinds of things we fund are teachers who are doing something amazing in climate change education, right, for middle schools, or, um, you know, creating new ways of teaching the topics that, you know, are sort of near and dear to National Geographic. And we run things like the Geography Bee every oh, year. great. Yeah. Great. Which, those kids? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could answer three questions in the Geography Bee. They're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One more question before we go to just a short short break. Sure. The storytelling, would that be, for example, I, I'm picturing um, maybe how to, how to cover or maybe the most interesting or creative ways to cover one of the lenses, whether it's wildlife or the human journey or the, the changing planet? Absolutely. It's really pushing the boundaries, right? So what is a unique way of data visualization around these things? Or how do we um, support scientific and environmental journalists, which really are losing funding elsewhere? Um, Where is, how do we tie together a photographer and a scientist to do a really interesting way of looking at a problem versus just one or the other? Oh, very good. Well, Tara, we're going to take just a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about those other buckets that you mentioned and development, marketing, communication, operations, and also want to learn a little bit more about you and how you found your way to this wonderful spot. So, listeners, we will be right back. I'm Ann Greenhall. This is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. Stay tuned. to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm your host tonight. I'm hosting by myself this evening because my dear colleagues and co-hosts Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem are off for the night, and they are missing a great guest. My guest tonight is Tara Bunch, and she is Chief Administrator, Administrative Officer at the National Geographic Society a 130-year-old nonprofit. Tara, before the break, we were talking a bit about the organizational structure of the society, and we talked about you have a new CEO. We should say, who's your new CEO? His name is Tracy Wollstonecroft, and he just started on October 1st. Very exciting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, we want to get into some leadership lessons there, I'm, I'm sure. 
And we were talking as well about the three programmatic arms that you have, the science arm, education arm, storytelling storytelling arm. And I just wanted to shift a little bit and talk about development, marketing, and communication and operations. So uh, tell me a little bit about those who head up those uh, those functions. Sure. Um, so our philanthropy arm, we actually call it partnerships because that's how we look at it. You know, it's not just about people giving the organization money, although any, any one of your listeners will take it. Um, <laughs> we are a nonprofit after all. Yes. Um, but <laughs> it's really about creating big partnerships um, with different organizations, whether they be foundations or, um, or corporations or individuals, mm-hmm. um, and, and really sort of saying, hey, how together do we get to some of these solutions that we're looking at? Um, and so it's really sort of uh, laid out that way. We have some folks that focus on corporations, on mm-hmm. foundations, on individual giving. Um, the marketing and engagement team um, is is sort of what it says. They, they, they focus on, you know, obviously the different areas of our programmatic work. Mm-hmm. Um, another key thing that they're responsible for is convening. Um, so, you know, who better than this this trusted brand for all these years, a scientific organization, to bring people together to discuss you know, key topics in the world, whether it is, um, you know, like an, uh, an event we did, I want to say about a year ago, um, on um, with E.O. Wilson on half Earth, right? So mm-hmm. how do we save half the Earth to make sure that the rest of the Earth, Earth remains mm-hmm. uh, viable? Or bringing people together around plastics, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big campaign, that, a multi-year campaign that we're, that we're working on to understand how do we find solutions at the source. Um, and then how do we then amplify that message, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what that team does to kind of say, hey, we have all of this amazing, these scientists, these storytellers, all of these things. How do we tell the world about it? Whether through National Geographic partners, right, so working with the magazine team or the channel, but also just getting it out through other words to policymakers and influencers that can make a difference. Mm, great. And then there's the operational side, which is my home. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And, and that, we support all of that other stuff. Very good. Very good. Well, just a couple thoughts in response. When you talk about partnerships, that mm-hmm. expression is familiar to me, a, an expression we, we use here uh, at Wharton, and I'm wondering if you use it as well. We talk about uh, time, treasure, and talent. Is that an expression you use? No, I haven't. You might share that. that. Yeah, no, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice way to think about um, the contribution that individuals or organizations can make. And I think the marketing communication team, I- I'm wondering if they feel particularly tied and grounded in the mission of the organization, which was originally, as you explained to me, convening. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, what better way, like I said, there's no other brand, I don't think, I'm biased, of course, but I don't think there's any other brand out there that can bring, you know, the leaders of, of different ocean conservancy or the, the leaders of different groups look, working on the mm-hmm. plastics programs together mm-hmm. because we're not, uh, we're based in science, right? We just want to find the right answers. Let's get the right minds in the room and have that conversation um, with each other with like I said, with influencers and with the public. Let the public know what we're working on and what those challenges are. Hmm, very good. All right, and so now operations. Under mm-hmm. operations, information technology, human resources, facility, finance and planning, metrics, evaluation and research. And the archive. Ah, <laughs> very good. Think about that, 130 years of all of that. Archive. So, yeah. so Tara, uh, 
in your in your role, what would you say uh, some of the greatest challenges are in the op- in the area of operations? I think the thing that is always front of mind, especially working at a at a nonprofit institution, is any dollar that you spend on things you know like technology or other things like that is a dollar that isn't going to go out into the field. Mm. So you need to make investment decisions, and we need to invest in our people, obviously. We need to invest in our campus. We need to invest in the tools that people can use to do their jobs better. But it is always having in the back of your mind that trade-off of mm. is, is this the best use of these resources versus, you know, sending those dollars out into the field. And that's, I think, it, it is, it's an exciting challenge, right? How can you be yeah. really efficient? Um, and still do things really well, um, but balancing that. Mm, boy. So how do you go about making those decisions? <sighs> um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting. Since we did this big transaction a few years ago, it's, it's almost freed up the operational side of the business um, to, to take a, a, a fresh look at the way we do everything. So um, we, you know, had a certain... Um, finance system that we used for years and years when we kind of looked at it and we're like, we're a smaller and different organization, yet it's scary to replace your whole, your whole you know, enterprise resource planning tool, but let's get the right thing for this organization mm-hmm. now. And while we're at it, let's look at the processes that we have and do they still make sense? Um, so I actually think it's, it's sort of freed up some innovation and creativity in, in parts of the organization that you don't necessarily hear about that mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. Um, which has been really exciting. And I think, you know, People can do finance, you know, and accounting anywhere. People can do information technology anywhere. They choose to do it at somewhere like National Geographic for a reason, right? They choose to do this because it is their passion to be, you know, in information security or in measurement and evaluation or whatever the function is, but they do it because they believe in the mission. And that's the exciting thing to have, you know, 400 people, 400-person organization, and every single one of them from the carpenter to the CEO Believing and, and moving toward a mission. It's exciting. Yeah, that uh, that is, and uh, you remind me of a guest we had on the show, also a pen a pen grad named uh, Amy Resnuski, who is now a faculty member professor at Yale, okay. and she writes about work and how we think about our work. So listeners who have been listening to the show for a while may have heard me speak about this before, so I hope they'll bear with me. But she says that, in general, we tend to think of our work in three ways, either as a transaction, so time in for money back in return, or as an opportunity for advancement, you know, climbing the career ladder, or as intrinsically valuable, so uh, an an end in in and of itself. And although these three ways of looking at work are not necessarily mutually exclusive, we do mm-hmm. tend to have a preference. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing you describe, <laughs> talk about really, is that third. The, yes. the people who choose to work at the National Geographic Society um, are doing so because they connect to the mission. Yeah, and I and I think it's it's really exciting to to hear from you know like the information technology team and to say how can they best support that that R and D lab in the basement, right? How can they ensure that they have the the data warehouse and whatever else that they need so that they can continue to you know create new things? Or how can we ensure that that our grantees are going out in the field with the right tools for measurement so that we can understand if they're if they're being successful. Mm. So Tara, let me get my timing right. Were you 
Were you in your role when uh, you made the shift in 2015 and consolidated uh, the media assets? Uh, I was, at that point, I was chief of staff to our former CEO. So I had been, I started off in National Geographic and business development. Um, And when we got a new CEO in 2014, um, I was sort of loaned out um, to kind of be the person you ask the dumb questions to. Um, (laughs) And it was supposed to be a temporary gig, you know, maybe a month, maybe two. It lasted three years. Wow. Um, And so I became his chief of staff. And and because the, you know, when you're doing that kind of thing, you can't have that many people sort of in the tent. Right, right. Um, We had maybe five or six folks at the very beginning in that tent. And, um, and it was a great opportunity for me personally to kind of be there and, and, and kind of take a look at the whole organization and what needed to happen. So I was in that role. And then once the transaction happened and we were sort of a different organization, I started taking on more of the operational functional role. Right. Well, let's talk about your experience as chief of staff during that time of transition. Uh, you know, Change, change is challenging for us all, <laughs> and it's yeah. one. It's one thing to be driving the change, and it's another thing to feel as though the change is happening to you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was it was a challenging time. I mean, you know, the, there were different parts of of difficulty. So, for six months or so over the summer of 2015, the difficulty was, you know keep your poker face and don't let anybody know sort of what's going on. Yeah. Right. Because you have to do this deal in sort of the wee hours of the night and, and, you know, in closed door meetings and things like that while trying to keep up normalcy. Right. Um, but you know that ultimately this is going to affect people's lives in some way. Yeah. Um, then it is the, you know, announcement and, and Hey, here's, you know, ensuring that we're communicating as well as possible, ensuring that people understand that, that, Mm. um, People are the most important asset of the organization, and we're going to do everything that we can, um, knowing that some people are going to be affected. That's just what happens. It's unfortunate. Um, but that we are being very thoughtful and deliberate about that process and, and letting people in. And then building a new organization, and, and yeah. what does that look like? Right. And that all happened in the span of, you know, 10 months. Right. Okay, so let's talk then about... I got sleep after that. <laughs> okay, very good, Tara. <laughs> so let's talk about 2015, when you yep. when there are just a few people in the tent, and you mm-hmm. have to walk around, as you said, with a poker face. Yep. I, I, I really appreciate that image. Uh, again, we've had uh, guests on the show who have talked about a very popular topic in the field of leadership, and that is authenticity. You know, mm-hmm. that you need to be your authentic self. Yep. And, you know, uh, when you're in a leadership role, sometimes you need to go forth. Um, I'm going to call it deep acting. In other words, you know, you may know and not be able to share all you know. <laughs> and that can require a great deal of uh, discretion in which you may not be as authentic as you might like to be because you are serving the aims of the organization. Would you say yeah. that's true? Was that true to your yeah, experience? No, I think that's very fair. It is, it, is a, it is a challenging role. Yeah. Ah, and then now when you say people were affected, I'm assuming that that's what I would call my dear friend Marcy says I, I use an ease and she would say an ease would be to use the word affected as opposed to fired. Well, I think there's a, there's a, there actually was a lot of different ways. I mean, we were actually creating two kind of new organizations. 
and some people who you know had worked on on certain parts of the organization who had that had forever been not for profit we're now working in a for-profit institution. Yes. And that's, that's different, right? Right. So same job, really. I mean, the, the job you had yesterday mm. is the same job you have today, but it's for a different organization and it's sort of with some different goals. Right. Right. So there was all kinds of different sort of affected. Um, yes, you know, unfortunately, you know, some people left by choice. Some people left because yeah. of... Um, Reorganization. Things happen. <laughs> Um, but, but, but there was a lot of different ways that people sort of were affected. They had different bosses potentially, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the legal team sort of had to get split in two, Mm. you know, so things like that, you know, so sort of which side did you, did you land on? And, and that was, it was, it was a tough set set of time. Right. So, uh, I appreciate your, uh, talking about the organization's attempt to be thoughtful and deliberate. Can you, can you, you know, maintaining discretion here, but can you give an illustration of what, what that might look like? Um, I don't know if I, if I exactly knew the, the question that you're asking. Well, you know, if let's say here you've got the legal team and mm-hmm. the legal team's going to be divided in two, and I assume changing offices. Part of the yeah. team's going over mm-hmm. here and the rest of the team may be staying there. You know, how do you go about being thoughtful and deliberate in delivering this news, which some may take as bad, others might take as an opportunity, but, you know, you're walking, it's a difficult conversation. So how do you, how do you, Absolutely. what would yeah, you yeah. recommend to us? <laughs> so I, I think the way that we, you know, that we go about it, I mean, obviously anytime that, that something, it's, you know, your job is very personal. Yes. Right? Your career is very personal. And, and I think, you know, just going into that with that sort of human view of, of any change is hard. Um, and any change like that, especially to your livelihood, is hard, um, is, is to, you know, like I said, be really thoughtful about it. If what, what happened a lot was, this is a great example, so if, if there was someone in, in one of those support groups that really supported the magazine fully, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to say, hey, this is your expertise. We want to keep you with the, the part of the business that, you know, fulfills your expertise. Um, and then there's, you know, there's, so that that made part of it sort of easy, and then you know there was there was tough calls, different places, you know it's always a challenge, um, but you know as much as possible, like I said, the, the good thing is is you know at the, at the time I think we had maybe a thousand people on the society side, okay, and I would say leadership almost to a person. I mean we knew everybody, we know their strengths, we know who mm-hmm. they are and where they want to what they want to do, um, and so we tried to as much as possible you know fit people really well. Mm. Um, but it was a challenge. And then, you know, we end up with a, a very different organization on the other end. Right. So talk a little bit about building. What were some of the challenges of building a new organization after you've gone through this change? Well, it's really interesting. So we've always been this not-for-profit, but um, really the engine um, of of the mm. society before the transaction, you know, things really centered around the magazine, right? That's what everybody knew us for right? Um, and so forth. So as, lo- as much as we had been giving grants and doing these amazing programs, and running educational programs and doing all this stuff all along, it wasn't as central as, you know, what ended up on the cover that month. Mm. So to sort of redirect everybody, and, and there were people internally that, you know, weren't as even aware of, of, some, of, those, of some of those activities. Mm. Um, so to really recenter and refocus, um, you know, what we spent the next, you know, year or so doing is really saying, okay, what is the strategic 
vision for this organization now that we can truly focus on those nonprofit activities? How are we going to um, re redo our grants process so that you know we can look across these lenses and these different areas of and say, hey, you know, rather than having a media arm and a and a programs arm and whatever, we're going to say no, science and exploration, education, storytelling, because these are the three areas we want to lean into. Um, so you know, reorganization and new processes and new tools, um, which was really exciting. I mean, we really sort of uh, the, the joke at the time was we're you know 130 year old startup. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> very yeah. good. On that note, just let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall, and I really have the pleasure of speaking with Tara Bunch. Tara is Chief Administrative Officer at the National Geographic Society. And we don't have a lot of time, but if you want to slip in a question or a call, please do at one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. All right, so Tara, how about in this last uh, bit that we have together? Let's talk a little bit more about you. Okay. So when you were young, let's mm-hmm. say ten, did you imagine that you would be chief administrative officer of the National Geographic Society? One hundred percent, no. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. Now, did you have thoughts about what you what you might like to be? So um, the, the the thing that my mother likes to embarrass me with at most group gatherings <laughs> is that when I was very young, you know, maybe five, six, um, the age that you play with Barbie dolls. Yes. Right? Um, I, we had a playroom that was sort of off from the kitchen so she could keep her ears open and listen to me. And she has said to me that multiple times what I would say is, Ken, you need to handle that. I have a meeting. <laughs> and I'm not great. sure where it came from, but I think from a very early age, I knew I wanted to be sort of a career woman. Um, my dad is a lawyer. Um, and for a long time, I thought that I would probably just do that because that's what I sort of knew. Um, I went so far as taking the LSATs while I was in college. I also took the GMAT and the GRE because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, and so what I knew most of all is that I liked analyzing things. I like mm. numbers. I like figuring out solutions to problems. Um, mm. so right out of college, I went into strategic consulting, right? Which is both the benefit of, I don't have to pick a certain thing, right? <laughs> right, right. It's a good <laughs> education. Yeah. Um, but you get to kind of work on all these different kinds of meaty problems. Um, and the, the most interesting thing I, I found from that um, experience was, yes, I have the information to answer the question that you're asking, but I actually think you're asking the wrong question, mm. um, which to me was always fascinating. It's sort of like, what is really the root cause of what we're trying to do here? Um, from there, it was really, you know, what is the bigger picture? You know, how do, I, how do we solve bigger problems? And I think that's the path that I've been on both through business school and then moving into these bigger operational roles is to say, how can you take a creative look at um, at solving problems. I think people look at my job and say, okay, how do you kind of run facilities, right, the engineers and the yeah. carpenters in the building, and HR and technology, and not, like, have your mind be going in, like, 20 different directions all day. And I'm like, you wouldn't believe how, how beneficial it is to look at them together hmm. and to understand how those different pieces, by working together, can come up with a really unique solution for something. Mm. Okay. Or take a learning from one piece and, and apply it somewhere else. Mm, that's great. How about just uh, just to pursue a little bit, when you did strategic consulting, you were doing strategic mm-hmm. consulting for media and entertainment businesses at yep. Accenture. Is that right? 
That's right. Okay. And how, why media and entertainment businesses? Um, so I started, when I started off, I did a little bit of everything. I was in an oil field. I was in pharma, you know, I mean, as you do when you're an analyst right out of college. Um, the reason I ended up going into media and entertainment primarily was the people, which is a lot of the reason that I have picked every job that I've ever taken since then. Um, I loved the team that was the media and entertainment practice at Accenture at the time. Um, and so, you know, I sort of adopted them as mentors. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, hey, whatever project you're on, I want to be on. And then I got to love the business. I really mm-hmm. loved media broadly and all the challenges that came with it. Mm-hmm. And so um, even then when I went back to business school, um, I knew that I wanted to get on the business side of, of media um, because I'm not a creative person by nature, but mm-hmm. I feel like I can really help support and drive things that, that kind of support that creative process. Oh, very good. You answered my question because I was wondering, um, you know, why you went back to business school, and it was really to get on the business side. And that's even yeah. though you had an undergraduate degree in business. Yeah. Um, it's You know, it's interesting. I never thought that I was going to, when I graduated from Wharton, I, I was sort of like, I don't need to go to business school. Why do I need to go to business school? I went to business school. <laughs> right. Now, and you know what? Most of our undergrads say that. Yeah. Um, and and I happen to have a mentor who um, sort of explained to me, she's like, yeah, you don't need to learn accounting again. She's like, but you do need to learn how to think differently. Mm-hmm. She's like, and, and you can't do that without having been in the workforce for some period of time. She's like, and, and to go back and to, to sort of get these real-world challenges. And um, and I would do it again tomorrow. I would go back to business school tomorrow if I didn't have to pay for it. I would go back. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> very good. So what would you say, uh, just speaking a little bit more personally, uh, how, how large is your staff, Tara? Um, my staff across all those different areas is probably about 120 or so. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. So, uh, I've got maybe two questions, but the first is how do you, how do you think about managing the staff? Oh, um, you know, I, I, it, that is a thing I think that consumes me more than anything else. I, you know, is, is trying to be a really good manager and role model. Um, I, I think I manage the way that I like to be managed. Okay, um, and how's, figure, how's that? What would that look yeah. like? Um, I try to figure out sort of, you know, where people's interests are, where they, where they want to learn, what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's, um, you know, how can I do that better? How can I, you know, get a better answer? For some other people, it's, you know, do you cheer them on or do you sort of push them in a different way? Yeah. Um, and I, I think the best managers really know their teams and know how to get the best out of them. And then um, be able to leave them alone and say, you know what, I trust you. Yeah. And because I'm not an expert in information technology, and I'm not an expert in HR, and I certainly am not an engineer. Right. Right. But mm-hmm. I but I try to successfully manage those people to their best potential. I think that trust factor is really important. All right. Now, just just to be a little bit academic here, just for fun, uh, do mm-hmm. you think of managing and leading differently? Absolutely. Okay. Say a little bit more. What what distinction do you make? I think leadership can be at any level of the organization. I think people can show leadership qualities across a wide range of things. Um, and that can be from the project that they're working on or, you know, the support that they give to somebody else. I think leadership is a very different quality than management. Management to me is more a little hierarchical. We need to get this report done. And those mm-hmm. things are important too, but I, I find them very different. 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, there's a, a wonderful expression about management being about uh, dealing with the status quo and solving problems and mm-hmm. leadership being more about anticipating those problems before they arrive mm-hmm. and uh, thinking proactively rather than reactively. And I hear a little bit of that in, in your response. Absolutely. I actually run sort of a little uh, book group um, with some younger women in the organization, and we, we're, I think we're on our fourth different leadership book now. And the, one of the first one we picked, we picked it because in the dust jacket it said, um, leadership isn't a, about titles, it's about attitude. Oh, great. Um, and so, you know, because it's, it's one of the things to say, hey, you know, how can we give, you know, people have helped me so much along the way. I've had mentors, I've had all kinds of things. So the way that I think about it is like, how do I pay this forward now? How do I instill confidence in this next level and this next generation of leadership? Right? How can I help them kind of become their best selves? Very good. Whether at National Geographic or elsewhere, right? Right. And just for fun, what was the title of that book? Spark. Spark. Okay, good. I may need it, to have it, the author on. You never know. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's uh, three authors, actually. And it's actually this great book to do as a group because at the end of each chapter, there are these exercises that you can then sort of talk about. Oh, that's great. Really yeah. good. All right. Well, we're winding down here, but how about one bit of uh, advice to our listeners who might aspire to follow in your footsteps? Sure. Oh, I've been given in, you know, so much good advice over my years, but I would say that there's a couple things that, that when people ask me, you know. How about just one because of yeah. time? Great. Don't be afraid to raise your hand. Um, I think that, you know, being able to kind of put yourself out there and learn something new, um, it really makes an impression on the people around you, and you never know where it's going to lead. I think, you know, anytime you can sort of expand your world a little bit, you sort of open up a whole bunch of new possibilities. Tara, that is great. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. I wish the best to you in the National Geographic Society. Thank you. Don't touch that dial after the break. I'll be talking with Mark Edmonds, who is in charge of a leadership development program at Deloitte. I'm Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Join us again. Take care. interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.